Eloquentia perfecta ex machina. Eloquentia perfecta ex machina. Eloquentia perfecta ex machina. Welcome to Eloquentia perfecta ex machina, a podcast series devoted to the teaching of rhetoric and composition with and through a range of media and focusing on the writing program at St. Louis University. On this podcast, we interview instructors about how and why they use multimodal approaches, and we have instructors interview other instructors about the nuts and bolts of particular tools and assignments. In today's episode, I sit down with Anessa Kemna and Carol Hogan-Downey to talk about their journeys in getting diagnosed with ADHD. We discuss particular techniques or support structures that have been valuable to them as both students and instructors, and what we might do to make higher education more equitable for neurodivergent students. Hello, and welcome to our second episode of Eloquentia Perfecta Ex Machina this season. I am here with Carol Hogan-Downey and Anessa Kemna. Would you two like to introduce yourselves? Sure. I'm Carol Hogan-Downey, and I am a sixth-year PhD candidate focusing on Irish theater in the 19th century. And uh, for a fun fact, Dolly Parton went to my high school. Oh, that's, that's exciting. Um, and yeah, like I said, my name is Anessa Kemna. Uh, I am in my seventh year of the PhD program and I'm a candidate focusing on medieval and Celtic literature and how it manifests in the 19th century. I come from the state where the Juicy Lucy, the cheeseburger with the uh, cheese on the inside was invented in Minnesota. Ah, so. That's an excellent fun fact. I realized that I didn't get to do a fun fact and now I feel left out. So um, um, the town Pawnee in Parks and Rec is based on my hometown. Uh, so yeah, that, there's my fun fact. Um, so <laughs> we get on a, slightly, uh, on a slightly more tangential note. So this episode is all about ADHD um, and navigating graduate school and, and instruction um, with ADHD. Um, and so the origin story for this episode um, is that, Anessa, you sent around a link um, to a Medium article uh, by Kirby Conrad called, So You're ABD and You're Also Beginning to Suspect That You Have ADHD, um, in which Conrad talks about what it means to be diagnosed with ADHD as a grad student at a moment where you set off to write a prospectus or begin your dissertation and all of your previous coping mechanisms in academic life kind of suddenly fail. Um, So Anessa, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about what drew you to Conrad's story and uh, why you thought it might be helpful for the department to read. So what originally drew me to it was, um, to be honest, being ABD and finding out I had ADHD. It was a it was a pretty direct link. Um, I was just diagnosed this past October, um, and I'm in my 30s. And suddenly, a lot of the struggles that I had been having with grad school, especially you know, especially with being out of coursework, all of a sudden, a lot of them started to line up. Um, I was suddenly seeing you know, because I always it was always so frustrating. You know, why can't I just sit down and work? Why do I want to get this done some days and still can't do it? Why have I lost all ability to even just cook myself dinner because I'm sitting here worrying about my dissertation all day? And so after that diagnosis clicked and I started to get medicated and things didn't improve instantly, but I started to sort of realize, A, how many people might be navigating the same thing I was without knowing it, just like I had been. Mm-hmm. And B, that while we have disability resources on SLU's campus, ADHD, it's an invisible disorder. Mm-hmm. And it does require a little bit of, you know, 
I don't want to call it specialized treatment because that's not the right word, but um, it does require some some specialized communication, especially between, you know, a, a dissertation writer and their advisor. Right. And I'm blind as well. And like, that doesn't actually impact how I talk to my advisor very often. Like she can't show me a picture from a book, but that's about it. Mm-hmm. But ADHD sort of helped me understand some of my issues with criticism and mm-hmm. uh, other other aspects that made it it difficult. And I realized that a lot of our grad students and a lot of our faculty might not know that this was a, a thing that needed to be addressed and how, e- how much easier we could potentially make at least some people's experience by just being aware of this. No, absolutely. I was, I was reading over your email and the piece itself and I was so blown away, not just by the changes that could be made to accommodate not just students who had ADHD, but some of the ideas would drastically benefit um, even the graduate students who didn't have ADHD, that these are accommodations and changes that uh, we should be making for everybody. Uh, but of course, especially uh, graduate students who are, who are trying to navigate, um, especially the dissertation stage with, with ADHD. Absolutely. Most accommodations that folks with ADHD need tend to be things that do benefit most people. It's just that for those who are dealing with, you know, this kind of neurodiversity, it's it's not so much that this would be nice, but uh, this would be necessary. <laughs> yes. So Carol, I know that you mentioned uh, you were diagnosed at 19, and I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about kind of what it was like uh, navigating diagnosis at that age and then going through graduate school, kind of uh, knowing that you had ADHD. Sure. Yeah, so I, um, like I said, yeah, I was diagnosed at 19. It was the end of my freshman year of college. Um, and in high school, everything had, uh, I'd stayed on top of a lot of things. I'd struggled. Um, I've mentioned that I, I think I'm probably dyscalculic as well. Um, so I'd had some problems in math classes and stuff like that. But in general, I'd stayed on top of things. There's a lot of structure in my life, um, thanks to my mom. Um, and in college, when that went away, suddenly, everything changed and I was a totally different student and I started to suspect. So I went and got my own diagnosis or went to a doctor who, or someone who diagnosed me and started on medication and never actually wound up getting any kind of counseling for that. And so it wasn't until my master's when I started to really like have to think about um, what I need to do to sort of work with and through my ADHD. And then in the PhD, it did become even more important as and expectations were higher because I was in the PhD now. Um, but interestingly, or maybe not, not really, I, I never actually got formal accommodations from the schools that I've been in. Um, I, part of it was, I figured I could get by without them. And there's this kind of, I mean, that's the thing with disability to begin with is that, you know, there's this stigma attached often. Um, if I can get by, why do it? I don't, it's not for me, but also there's the, the idea that ADHD isn't, not everyone believes it, but it's real. And for an adult woman who's got a very bubbly personality to be like, oh yes, well, I have ADHD. I'm, I say it and I'm, I'm very open about it, but I'm also conscious, constantly worried that someone's internally rolling their eyes or maybe not even internally. Um, and that it's more of people thinking it's just an excuse for me to not pay attention to things. And that's a lot of the problems as I was thinking about this, a lot of the problems that I did have in coursework were having to deal with that, thinking about the fact that I struggle with things that 
I'm not going to be able to pay attention to a really opaque text that isn't fascinating. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to be able to read it and understand it the whole way through. Right. If I am, it's going to be like pulling teeth. Time management's of course a problem. It's executive functioning, organizing arguments, the more complex they get. I mean, I know everyone struggles with that, but I have no concept of what neurotypical thinking is a lot of the time. And so like we joke, people talk about ADHD, people being creative and thinking outside the box and neuro divergent people in general being that way. And the reality is we don't know what the box is, or at least I don't. (laughs) And it's like, I'm banging on the box, like, let me in. (laughs) (laughs) So I'm writing for people in the box, right? (laughs) It's a mystery. (laughs) And I'm writing for people inside the box from outside the box, but I don't know what it's like in there. And, um, I feel like I'm still looking for the box. (laughs) Is the box real? (laughs) It's a question that seems fake. The fourth (laughs) dimension. Yes. So there's that and I'm impulsive and I, and so that was a benefit. Like these things are also benefits. Um, It's given me a a fresh, if you will, a fresh perspective so that I can write things and design projects that surprise people. Um, And I don't even know the things that they tell me are surprising are not the things that I know expect to be surprising um I'm bubbling when I would be in seminar I'd be bubbling over with ideas and I'd have to like do, do everything I could not to interrupt but it was very visible that I was like distracting like bouncing up and down I was so excited and there's emotional dysregulation in there and issues with meds that's been kind of my big struggle throughout the program <laughs> that's you're like smirking because it's like you could feel it couldn't you <laughs> we were in coursework together <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I was trying to stay awake and she couldn't sit still. (laughs) (laughs) Impulsive hyperactive type. But yeah, definitely, you know, it's unstructured time and things are hard. I'm not very good with deadlines that I impose upon myself. What is it you say, Anessa? Our usual go-to is just like, I know who set that deadline and she's full of crap. So I don't have to (laughs) to listen to that. So there's a lot of that. And there was a point especially last year, I think is when it got really bad when again, medication issues were another problem where my med, I was, my medication was no longer effective and I had been mm-hmm. losing effectiveness and I didn't realize it cause it's like broiling the frog thing. Um, and then anxiety meds also needed to be adjusted. And, uh, I was just kind of living in shame. Um, I had, you know, last was this? Yeah. Last year I won the Ong award, which was great. But at the same time, I was taking a year per chapter and I still am. And I just didn't feel like I was going anywhere, getting anywhere. And, uh, you know, we, we kind of treat shame even now as like a motivator and it's not. And that's the, yeah. like a big thing that I've learned is that like, I, my ADHD is not led by the like threat of the future or the, you know, the, the, the threat of shame that I've got to find the carrot. I've got to find the thing to like, make me want to move forward because my brain's like haha unless there's dopamine there I'm not doing it <laughs> so yeah <laughs> sticks to... only carrots <laughs> yes yes <laughs> so I've had to like think up ways to like like my brain's like a toddler <laughs> like okay you'll get the candy the good candy so yeah I I it strikes me how much ADHD both seems to kind of exacerbate uh, things that are already 
present in academia, but also, as you said, like, it seems like it is easy, even when that is harmful to ignore, because these are things that are already present in academia. Like, oh, this is imposter syndrome, which I assume everybody gets, or, oh, you know, this is an aversion to shame, which everyone <laughs> develops uh, after a certain time in academia. Um, but yeah, I imagine it can feel hard to navigate what it looks like to ask for specific accommodations like that. Um, so what do you think when it comes to accommodations for graduate students who have ADHD of various types, like what would be um, kind of like the dream scenario? What are some things that you think that we should be offering uh, to graduate students and or also making generally available to all graduate students when it comes to um, praxis for advisors, when it comes to talking about what mentorship is um, in higher ed? Uh, what are some things you'd like to see change? I mean, I think the big one jumping off from where we are is to realize that like, I don't think many people are motivated by shame. Mm -hmm. And if they are, it's because they've trained themselves to be because that's all we get. Um, and oftentimes it's, it's not intentional shame, uh, especially in our, you know, I, at, least, at least speaking for our department, like it's, it's often not intentional shame. Um, but it's, it's the culture of academia. Shame is our, is our lead tool, shame and fear of some kind or another. And it doesn't work. Uh, it, it's paralytic. It just doesn't, it's not an effective tool. Um, and so I think working on being a more mutually encouraging space, um, not normalizing that culture, whether it's coming from an advisor, whether it's coming from classmates or internally. I spent a lot of my life just going, why can't you get your crap together? Just do it, you weirdo. <laughs> Uh, you know, just fight through it. And it just ended up with me laying in bed watching Netflix and hating myself and not still not getting anything done. Mm -hmm. No, I was thinking a lot when you were talking about yeah, Conrad's uh, anecdote about needing to ask their advisor um, explicitly to put in like little smiley faces um, or, you know, little like nice exclamation mark comments at places where genuinely even in like, you know, a rougher piece of writing, there are shows of promise and the ways in which that fundamentally changed their relationship to their advisor's feedback that they were able to um, kind of ingest and move through uh, the commentary and actually take it into consideration instead of being stopped by a sense of fear or shame. Um, I was telling Carol earlier, it reminded me so much of, uh, I, I had one professor in graduate school who would give um, incredibly good feedback, really, really good feedback, but worded sometimes very sharply. Um, and it, I, eventually after, after a very long struggle, I realized what I needed to do was physically print out all of the, um, all of the chapters or papers they were commenting on, um, just because it felt a little bit less like walking through like a haunted house with like jump scares <laughs> to be able to see it all on the printed page rather than like so slowly doom scrolling through the piece and like looking for the pop-up of Microsoft Word comments and being like oh oh no what's gonna happen now um, but yeah I think those kind of conversations in terms of how how mentors structure feedback or the ways in which um, kind of criticism or constructive feedback is given is is, is incredibly important um, Carol did you want to um, jump in on that yeah, um, so I have a couple things that I think are kind of all in a knot together with what you're saying. I mean, the first being that uh, the, the idea that these things that help uh, neurodivergent people help can also help neurotypical people mm -hmm. um, speaks to something that I think any educator can benefit from, which is looking into and learning about neurodiversity paradigm. Mm -hmm. And the fact that, you know, it's, we're all different, diverse neurotypes and mm -hmm. that 
there's going to be overlap even am- among different kinds of neurodivergence but also there are people who don't know they're neurodivergent. And so assuming that anyone could be and adopting things that can help people or making explicit those things would be really useful Um, from being clear like, hey, I just want to explain why I'm giving you this feedback rather than just expect, there's a lot of it, I feel like expecting people to intuit things in Mm -hmm. grad school. Mm -hmm. Um, I think in college in general, we expect students to intuit a lot because we expect them to know the culture. um, And that's not necessarily true. Um, But with, you know, sort of making those things clear and explicit rather than trying to pretend like, oh, they'll, they'll get it just like I got it eventually, which is really just reproducing trauma, mm-hmm. um, which yeah. mm-hmm. might, might seem it's a big word to drop for something like this. But I mean, something that's big and this speaks to the wanting and needing that uh, encouragement. The word I've been using instead of encouragement lately has been empowerment. Mm-hmm. Um, because that's the idea is that it, it picks you up out of that shame mire and it makes you powerful. Like it makes you able to do these things, but the, the need for that, as opposed to unchecked criticism, mm-hmm. um, in social media, ADHD, social media right now, um, one of the really hot things people's people are really talking about that really resonates with a lot of people is this concept of rejection, sensitive dysphoria, mm-hmm. which isn't in any of the peer review literature that I have looked into. Rejection sensitivity is, and that's associated with a lot of things, a few different neurodivergent um, types, but it's also associated with trauma. And there's a question mark of like, how much of this is just like living in a world that is not built for you and being rejected over and over until you become so sensitive to the slightest criticism. Mm -hmm. Um, And some of it's emotional dysregulation Um, and recognizing like, I mean, that's another thing that's, I think, not, well, it's weirdly normal is the, like, you're going to cry in your advisor's office at least once (laughs) or or 30 times. It's fine. (laughs) That should not be normal. (laughs) I imagine that all of of these issues are exacerbated during the pandemic. I mean, I know this was a a question we were going to tackle a little bit later, but when it comes to uh, quarantine and, you know, hybrid teaching and kind of the focus on maintaining productivity, um, oh in the face of uh, uh, catastrophically different conditions. I imagine that, you know, navigating that with ADHD is just, you know, it's like playing a game, you know, eight levels up from where you were used to um, and still trying to finish on time. Yeah, it's, I know for me, I mean, I'm pretty sure the pandemic is what finally pushed me into actually being like, I, okay, something, I think it was actually what pushed me past all the just shame spirals of like, oh, I must just be a garbage person. I must just not be good at this to sort of, okay, something is actually wrong. Like I can't, I can't do this. And I don't understand what's happening. Like all the, all of the signs had been there, but the pandemic definitely sort of flipped the final switch. So apart from mentorship, um, what are some of the kind of like nuts and bolts strategies that you have developed over the course of your graduate career um, when it comes to uh, trying to either navigate or give yourself structured time when it comes to navigating um, having multiple projects? Uh, I was I was really inspired by especially Conrad's um, 
uh, discussion of this idea of like project crop rotation of like literally rotating out uh, different projects. I do this with grading all the time because I am uh, uh, horrible at uh, grading in a structured way. Um, I need to do it all in a rush or not at all. But um, the idea of like kind of switching out like crop rotation, different projects so that you can kind of dart between them. Um, it, even though that kind of goes against, I feel like a lot of traditional wisdom of like, oh no, focus entirely on one thing at one time. Um, so are there particular strategies that you guys have, have deployed over the course of your graduate career that have worked well? I mean, so one that I, we both got into um, in the past year or so was we, we formed a writing group with a couple of other grad students and ours, uh, we were we used to meet in person, but we meet on Zoom now. And uh, we use the Pomodoro technique. So that's the timer with the 25 minutes of work, five minutes of break so that we have body doubling because that is a thing that people with ADHD really, really benefit is just having someone near you either really or online doing the same thing at the same time. And we do, we do the body doubling to palms. And then we also have our talk palms. And so this is where we spend 25 minutes and anybody who's got a problem they're running into or something that they're kind of working out, chewing on, we discuss it and kind of help, try to help them get through the issue that they're having. And it kind of brings back some of that nice externalization and structure that I really benefited from in coursework um, mm -hmm. to some degree. So that's been a huge help. Yeah, and because body doubling can be a thing where they're working on the same thing you're working on or just they're working on their own thing. It's the important part is that someone is with you doing something. So yeah, so one of one of my strategies even before the writing group in the pandemic was um, that I, I really liked working in coffee shops um, because, uh, and with friends specifically, because I also get a lot of benefit from body doubling and um, which can also be something that the person who's with you to do body doubling does not have to be doing even the same thing that you're doing. I mean, that's, that's extra helpful, but sometimes it's just having someone working with you as sort of a, a passive accountability partner. So they're, they're not doing anything specifically to say, Hey, do your work, but their presence is an encouragement unto itself to stay focused and to get something done. And that was always very, very helpful for me. Um, it's how I get housework done. A lot of times it's how I get schoolwork done. It, doesn't always work, <laughs> but, um, but that's a, a big, a big part of how I get stuff done in every portion of my life is, is reaching out. Yeah, actually, Edessa, I was going to ask you, uh, you know, I know that you've been on an EPM episode before um, about your perspective on access in the classroom as a blind graduate instructor. Um, and I know that you mentioned uh, this a little bit earlier in the episode, but I was wondering if you wanted to talk about what it was like kind of navigating, as you said, uh, accommodations um, for both, how they intersect. Um, uh, do you do you want to kind of talk through that? Yeah, um, absolutely. So I think part of the reason that I didn't pick up on the ADHD sooner was actually that I was getting accommodations for, um, for my, from blindness stuff for school. Um, and a lot of those ended up looking very similar to what you would receive for ADHD accommodations. Mm -hmm. I had a time and a half to take tests. I was taking them in a room alone, not because I needed no, not because I thought I needed no distractions, but because I was using a computer with like a, a school computer with a screen reader that could be, you know, regulated by the disability resources office for, for accountability's sake. So I spent most of college taking tests um, by myself 
with extra time, which is, I don't know for sure if that would have helped me if I had done it that played me benefit. I had accommodations of getting materials in alternative formats. Mm-hmm. Um, I, so I, I received a lot of accommodations in a way that would have been things that benefited me as a person with ADHD. I just didn't know that that's what I was sort of getting. And I think that actually happens to a lot of people who do have coexisting disabilities is sometimes, sometimes they, they sort of come together (laughs) Mm -hmm. in a nice way, which is a good trade-off because the flip side of that is that being blind in ADHD, uh, ADHD folks have a lot of issue with, you know, sort of out of sight, out of mind. We don't have a, a lot of us don't have a good working memory. It's, it's one of the sort of symptoms of ADHD. Working memory gets really bad when you can't see that you left the milk on the counter. Like, (laughs) so that, that exacerbated a lot of the, a lot of the issues that I had with just like general executive functioning, but for school, the accommodations overlapped. And that was, Mm -hmm. that was really nice. Um, and again, I, I think it's part of the reason that I went so long without getting diagnosed was that I, I was getting some help. I just didn't know what it was for. <laughs> yeah. So when it comes to that, then your role as instructors, I was wondering, you know, do, when you design your courses, um, how are you keeping in mind both, um, you know, making accommodations for yourself as an instructor, your work patterns, your grading patterns, um, your teaching patterns, but also, you know, what, what does it look like to design a course, um, you know, specifically for students who have ADHD? Like what if we, what if we just assumed, right, that our, um, that our students had ADHD, what might we change about course design? What are some things that you, you have either done or would like to do in the future? Well, um, for me, I design things more with neurodiversity in mind. So there's, I, I assume more visual things every year. I think about like, how would I need to succeed? In, what would I need to succeed in this class as a student? Um, so once I moved to the hybrid format, I, mm-hmm. and I started making things like using Blackboard a lot more heavily. I've now set it up so that every week has a to-do list that's like isolated from other weeks and everything that you need to do that week is clickable from that page. And then, and so that's just, you just move through it piece by piece. Um, and, and cause I started having nightmares that I was taking an online class and that I couldn't find things that I needed to do where I would forget things. Um, and so that's been a part of it. I, I use a course website for my syllabus so that my students mm-hmm. at all times can access the syllabus on their phones or wherever mm-hmm. um, and see the schedule. I'm, I made a, an intro video for the Disloy Logoi on top of having a uh, an assignment sheet. And I've tried to scaffold, it, scaffold every which way that I can think of and, and create so many different modalities to like get the really heavy stuff across. Um, and then I, and I, I mentioned, I think earlier that I, I have these strategies set up mm-hmm. that I've been using and I've thought about them more and more when I'm trying to explain to students like, oh, well, you can use this. And so I don't know how many of my students have ADHD, but all of my students hear about my technique with note cards. All of my students hear that, you know, now and then you're going to have to change things up. I tell them about mm-hmm. the Pomodoro technique, which everyone, like a lot of people use, but things that benefit ADHD people, I, I, I share and I'm open first day that I have ADHD because I think they would probably be really concerned about me if I didn't. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, I think it's crazy. <laughs> the concept of having nightmares from the perspectives of your students as a pedagogical technique. I mean, I'm, I'm not happy that you have them, but I think yeah. that's the first time I've ever heard of that. 
no, but I really love, and I think there has been a lot of conversation, not just about neurodivergent students, but like being as explicit and like repeating yourself as much as possible because it is in those moments of um, trying to navigate Blackboard or trying to navigate unspoken expectations or deadlines where the students that fall through the cracks are not just the neurodivergent students, but also, you know, the first gen students um, or students who are trying to balance kind of home or work responsibilities on top of education. Um, so again, yeah, I think that there's, uh, w w once we think about making those accommodations, it it's only going to benefit um, not just neuro divergent students but a lot of a lot of students who would otherwise um fall through the cracks in higher ed yeah and I think there's a lot to be learned from COVID for people structuring their classes uh to help out neurodivergent folks in the sense of the pandemic has not in a not in a completely accurate sense but it's given a lot of people a taste of what neurodivergent folks are living with all the time mm -hmm. and so to instructors who are listening to this, that's my biggest thing. Like, take all of this misery and struggle that you're watching your students who are now being told that it's okay to express that. And imagine at least a quarter of them, probably more, are doing this all the time in an environment where it's not okay to say I'm not okay. Or we yeah. haven't made it okay to say that. Because it's, you know, everyone's having a lot of trouble with time management right now. No one can keep track of all their online stuff. Um, and I watch people talk about this and I'm like, I feel really bad for you, but also welcome to my Tuesday. Um, so I think that's the big thing is keeping in mind and like using this pandemic as a learning opportunity to further accommodate your neurodivergent students in the future. Yeah. That we're not going exactly back to the, back to the whiteboard once, once COVID is, uh, uh, at least moving away from our everyday, bit too cold right. on our everyday lives that we do keep some of the, some of the techniques like introductory videos, right. Or, you know, like, um, thinking about how we, how we offer, um, assignments in multiple ways, um, I think does have a lot of value and, and is, is necessary beyond, um, uh, beyond COVID. Yeah. Well, I know for me, a lot of my accommodations that I are not accommodations, but strategies that I've used in my classes have been a little less intentional because I, again, I didn't know what I was working with. My brain had not sent the memo around to everybody else yet, what it was doing. Um, a lot of mine were sort of survival strategies for me just to not die while I was teaching. <laughs> um, things like minimizing the amount of grading that had to be done. So I, I'm not a big fan of busy work. Mm -hmm. A, because I think it's stupid. And B, because I know how hard it is for me to grade it and how hard it is for them to do it. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, I, I don't mind an assignment where it's just, you know, it's, it's a check if you did it, no check if you didn't. And collectively, it might be worth a little bit of your grade, but each little thing is not worth that much. Um, I, I'm also very big, and I, I think most of us are these days, but I don't assign students topics ever because mm -hmm. I understand the value of writing something you care about. And a, a big part of ADHD is that you, you do best with something that you are interested in, mm -hmm. which again, like everybody does, but the struggle gets significantly harder for, for folks with ADHD when they're mm -hmm. not interested in what they're working on. Like it, it gets yeah. almost physically painful to try to do something that you don't care about. Yeah, that's actually the, when people say that a lot of the symptoms for ADHD are, you know, oh, everyone has this issue. Um, the example that I give people is like, yeah, everyone also falls asleep sometimes, but that doesn't mean that we're all a little narcoleptic. Like, 
if it's if you can't control <laughs> yeah. it, if it interferes with your life. If it's really bad, that makes it a disorder. And that's mm-hmm. the big difference. Yeah. Yeah, no, I mean, that does remind me like the ways in which 1900 is currently structured to give students um, much more freedom um, in navigating, even though they're within a certain kind of thread or focus, um, to give them their freedom to choose a project that they're going to work on for the rest of the semester that needs to be deeply rooted in something they're interested in is, I think, something we could we could bring over to more classes. I know when it comes to uh, uh, final projects, um, a lot of my a lot of my classes this semester, uh, the final projects are a public facing project rather than a final research essay in which they have to tie kind of our course discussions and readings to um, something, you know, involving, this is a uh, crime and transgression in medieval and early modern drama class, but something that has to do broadly with contemporary um, uh, crime and criminal justice um, or kind of transgressive narratives, true crime. Um, And, you know, if you cast the net wide enough, even the students who are kind of uh, dragged kicking and screaming into this course for credit will have something they're interested in. Um, So yeah, kind of casting that broad net, I think does allow for, uh, especially at the end of the semester when students are so burned out, um, a kind of hook or anchor um, into into uh, an ability to kind of push this project over the finish line. Mm-hmm. It's also a good way to see which students either just have been struggling because they haven't been engaging, not that they haven't been getting it, presenting mm-hmm. them with a, here, take this chance and do this project in a, in a medium that speaks to you. Mm-hmm. And Absolutely. then sometimes you just watch them blossom and it's amazing. Yeah, that's actually, I've taken the, um, broadly, the concept of the multimodal um, mm-hmm. to use when I teach literature so mm-hmm. that my, my final exam, because I don't like final exams, um, I don't like tests, I'm giving mm-hmm. them, um, I make them do, or make them, I have them do <laughs> uh, group adaptation projects. And they have a process essay that, that they write as a group that goes with it, but it's multimodal and it's, uh, it's something that they can, you know, based on their own reading and how you would adapt this and how does the medium change it. And so it's, it's very much like the idea was born out of the multimodal project and process Mm -hmm. paper. Um, And then I just kind of shifted it later because I want them to be able to be doing different kinds of thinking Mm -hmm. and work while they're doing writing papers and tests for other classes. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. I actually had them. I had the same project. I think I I might've used your assignment sheet as one of the origins, the, the, um, inspirations for this, but in 2650 last semester, I did their final project was a group adaptation project. And again, yeah, some students who were kind of struggling in the semester really blossomed when they were like, okay, we're making a podcast episode adaptation of this Black Mirror episode. Um, or like we're making a graphic novel. It turns out one of my students was like this amazing artist. Um, and so they teamed up to make a, a graphic novel episode of, um, again, like a, a section of Black Mirror we had watched for class. Um, but yeah, I love that idea of both kind of allowing them a creative outlet during a time where it's a lot of focus on exams, but also, you know, show me kind of what you're passionate about, kind of like bring in something that you haven't been able to bring in before. Um, and that's going to be a kind of new, new thing I get to see from you, a new, a new aspect of your, of your strengths as a student. Yeah. And it's also, it's also a thing that makes me, I use it to help adjust grades a little bit too, at the Mm -hmm. end, because then I can, again, I can see like, okay, some of these things that went wrong for you might not have been your fault. Mm -hmm. And it makes me it reminds me to be a more compassionate grader. Mm-hmm. School as is does not work for everybody. And we try mm-hmm. to make it and it just, it doesn't. <laughs> yeah, I think it, it, it is really helpful at the end of the semester to look back and say like, okay, 
what kind of rough patches in work were because of the way that I phrased this assignment or the time we spent, right, going over a sample or the exercises we did to scaffold for this, um, in which case, you know, I have to, you know, I can't penalize students that harshly, right, when it comes to grades. That's something that I need to think about structurally, how the course is setting them up for these kinds of modes of assessment. Yeah, I always, uh, I think about how Carol tells her students that she has ADHD. And I, I feel like now that I know I do as well, I really just want to send like a note to every single student I've ever had. Just be like, I'm really sorry. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> my brain was doing things. Cause I, 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 about halfway through the semester, like clockwork, you know, fall behind on my grading, fall behind <laughs> on responding to emails, uh, like stop explaining things well, just start going off the cuff like crazy because I've, I've just run out of spoons completely. And I feel like if I could go back to them and be like, oh, guys, I didn't suck. Like, I just <laughs> unmedicated. I'm sorry. Um, and things like that with, with grades and stuff, too. I'm like, you know, I bet if I'd taken, if I'd been able to take the, the time and had the ability to get this more under control, like some of you might have done a little better. <laughs> uh, I do have one actually thing I want to add really quick before yes. we wrap up here. Um, just sort of the, the PSA portion of this. Um, <laughs> If any of this is sounding familiar to you as you watch this, if you struggle with your executive functioning to the point where it's interfering with your life, if you cannot keep a schedule, if someone giving you a basic comment on a paper just makes you feel like you are the worst piece of garbage in the world, um, any number of the things that we've talked about, and it doesn't even have to be to quite that extreme, but any of these things we've talked about, if you're listening to this and you're like, oh man, that sounds like me. Go get an evaluation. It doesn't mean you have it, but so many adults are undiagnosed. I'm 30, I'm 32. I was diagnosed three months ago. Um, it, you don't have to have been hyperactive. You don't have to have been bad at school. I'm not hyperactive. I was really good at school until like three years ago. Um, and especially in women, it's, it's severely underdiagnosed. And you, again, you may not have it. ADHD can look like a lot of other things. A lot of other things can cause similar symptoms, but don't just assume that because you don't fit the stereotypes that you don't have it and go get checked out because getting checked out can make so much difference. Um, and I just think that we, we sort of say like, well, I'm not struggling that bad. So I don't, you know, like Carol said earlier, like, oh, it's not that bad. I can push through. You don't have to, like, there's stuff out there to help whether you want to medicate or not. There are, there are tools and just knowing the language that you have available to you to look for those tools changes everything. Like if this is, if this is ringing a bell, like go, go get checked out. It doesn't even have to be by a, by a neuropsychologist. You could just talk to your, talk to your GP talk to your therapist. Any of them can diagnose you. And it's, it's worth a conversation because no one should have to fight through this without the tools just because they never asked the question. Thank you so much, Anessa. I think that's the perfect end of this episode. If you'd like to get involved in this podcast series, to share an assignment or tool or to pitch an interview, please contact me at sheila.corsi at slu.edu.
Eloquentia perfecta ex machina. Eloquentia perfecta ex machina.